About 200 years ago, an English bishop wrote a poem that became a hymn that we still sing today. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. The hymn worships God in his holiness, but in particular, that second stanza there, weds together two attributes of God, his mercy and his might. We talk about attributes of God, communicable, incommunicable, if you want to put the theologian terms on it. In other words, it's the idea that some of his attributes are ones that we imperfectly seek to replicate, his love, justice, mercy, and then there are others that are incommunicable, such as his omnipotence and his power. Here it's mercy and might. It's an interesting pairing, mercy and might, because from a purely secular perspective, they don't always go together as sort of common allies. Mercy is compassion toward those who are weak. One dictionary defines mercy as showing compassion or forgiveness toward someone, even when it is within one's power to punish or harm. Do you see that? That's it's an interesting distinction about mercy in that the, the one demonstrating the mercy may even have power to punish or harm, but instead he or she shows compassion. That's mercy. One theologian says God's mercy is his goodness toward those in misery and distress. People with great mercy are not always known for their, um, people with great might, I should say, are not always known to be greatly merciful people either. It doesn't always go hand in hand. Those with great power sometimes use their power wrongly. They sometimes abuse it for their benefit and their gain and take advantage of those who are in distress, who are weaker. Uh, we see and hear a lot about oppressive regimes and people who have been victimized or exploited in some way. Much hurt and suffering in the world happens at the hands of those who are powerful and who do not show mercy to those who are weak, merciful, and mighty. That is our God. That is one of the ways that Scripture describes him, and we're going to see that interplay between God's mercy and his might today in Luke chapter 1. You can turn ahead to Luke chapter 1, familiar passage that is meant to spark worship in us as we think about the character of God and we think in particular about his mercy and his might. One of the attributes that we use to describe the creator is his omnipotence, the fact that God is all-powerful, that man has some measure of power, some people seem more powerful than others, but none compare to the omnipotence of Almighty God number of references in Scripture that speak of the power of God. First Kings chapter 8, Solomon is standing before the Jewish people. He stretches out his hands to pray and says, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or earth beneath. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. And in his speaking about God's greatness, his immensity, his power, he goes on to say that, that people from other nations will, will come because of Israel's worship of this God. They will be drawn to him. And it says in 1 Kings 8, 42, they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. They're going to hear that you are powerful, that you have a mighty hand. That reference to outstretched arm, it's more than a dozen times in the Old Testament that that phrase is used. And it's always tied in with the sovereign work of God. When it speaks of God's outstretched arm, it speaks of him accomplishing that which he sets out to do. So it's another way of saying that God is mighty. He accomplishes what he plans. 
Generations later, Nehemiah prays, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. God testifies to his own power in Isaiah 46. He says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. That's the definition of might and power. It is the ability to not simply plan something, but to accomplish it perfectly, to carry out what one sets out to do. God is mighty. And alongside his might, Scripture frequently tells us about his mercy. Over and over again, Scripture reminds us that he is a merciful God. That's how he presents himself to Moses on the mountain in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then we've already been singing it just a moment ago, the testimony of the prophet Jeremiah when he is weeping over the judgment that has rightly fallen on Jerusalem and on Judah because of their sin. And even in the midst of God's judgment being poured out, Jeremiah is able to write in Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. He continues to pour out mercy. God is mighty, and he is merciful. He is perfect in power and perfect in compassion. The creator makes man, gives to man the, the blessings of his perfect creation that he declares to be very good, and man rebels against that. And God justly brings about punishment. And the sentence is death for all who will rebel against him. The, the righteous punishment that we deserve is that penalty, and God has the power to enforce it. And yet, from eternity past, God has purposed to be merciful, that even to sinners who have rebelled against him, he will send his beloved son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, to bear our sin so that he might pour out mercy on us. That is mercy and that is might. Two attributes of God that, that we as his children should never stop exploring, never stop meditating on, never stop thinking about and singing about and, and worshiping God for, considering his mercy and his might. This morning we're starting a series of Advent messages, Worship the King. And so from now through Christmas Eve, we'll just be taking some of these scenes of worship that surround the, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And the first one here is in Luke 1, includes Mary's wonderful song of praise that we're going to get to in a few minutes. Mary was a young girl, biblical scholars estimate in her mid-teens, uh, when she is betrothed at this point to Joseph, that meant that Marriage was a sure thing and an imminent thing, but had not yet occurred. They had not yet been intimate. In fact, Luke 127 emphasizes the point that Mary was a virgin. And then Luke describes to us how Mary's world is turned upside down. An angel comes to her in verse 31 of Luke 1 says, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. At some level, the angel's announcement to Mary sounds nonsensical, not, not in a sort of humorous, biting kind of way, but, but in the sense that she's, she's saying, how, how is this possible? She's asking the, the very clear and obvious question, which is, I am a virgin, and so I, even, if I, even if I desire to have this, 
this blessing, this child that you have spoken of, I, I don't understand how this happens. And so we read on, verse 35, the angel answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Look, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary was not resisting God's will. She was simply asking what was the obvious question at that moment is, How can this be? because I've not been with a man, and so that I am a virgin. And, and the angel says to her, in a sense, understood, humanly, right? This is impossible on human terms, but with God, this is not impossible. This is the work of God, and already the, the angel is introducing her again to the power of God. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Nothing is impossible with God. And Mary's skepticism is, is quickly turned to faith. What seemed impossible now is clearly the work of God. And Mary's response, we often look to, is just a, a model of servanthood in terms of responding to God's call. Knowing that what God has called and what he has willed is not always easy, but the response of obedience. May it be done to me as you have said. I, I will follow what you say. Because Mary has now come to see that this is possible with God. If there's one thing that we begin to learn about Mary from the song that she gives is she is versed in understanding the God of the Old Testament. And if there's one thing she's learned about him, that is God is powerful. God is able to do that which he sets out to do. And, and Mary clearly is well versed in knowing about his character such that she now joyfully embraces this truth that that the God of her forefathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David is now calling her, Mary of Nazareth, to be his servant for this particular task that he has called her to. And Mary is called and she acts in faith and obedience. Angel mentions to her uh, that relative, older relative, she described, uh, the angel describes as Elizabeth, apparently a cousin of Mary's who lives in Judah. We know from earlier in Luke chapter 1, that Elizabeth is married to Zechariah, who is a priest, who has priestly responsibilities in Jerusalem at the temple, so they live in what's roughly the, the suburbs of Jerusalem, the hill country outside of Jerusalem. About a two-day journey for Mary to go down to Elizabeth. We also know from the start of Luke's gospel that Zechariah and Elizabeth are older and childless. I hear something. <laughs> I'm just... Putting you on the spot, Walter, you know? Thank you. Love you, brother. <laughs> All right. Zechariah has been told that there is a child coming. They've assumed that Elizabeth passed the age of childbearing. That's, in fact, why it says that the angel said the one who is called barren. She has reached that point age-wise where this is not possible. But God will do a miracle. God in his power will do a miracle, and Zechariah is promised a son. If you read the account back from the promise to Zechariah, you know Zechariah comes across as a little bit more skeptical. His skepticism seems to run a little deeper than Mary's. And, and the other facet of this is Zechariah is an aged, experienced priest. 
This is a guy who has been in the, the word, the Hebrew scriptures throughout his life, and yet he is sort of questioning God's power to some measure. If anybody should have known better, it, it was Zechariah. And so where Mary seems to lack understanding, Zechariah seems to lack some measure of faith, and he's rebuked for it, but nonetheless, the promise stands. There is assurance that the child will be born, and his name will be John. And God will call John to go before the Messiah and to prepare the way. It will be John's holy calling to go out through Israel and to, to speak forth the truth of the coming of the Messiah. All right, we've, we've read this before. We're familiar with this story, and we say, yep, got all this, know all this. If you're, if you're reading this for the first time, or you remember reading this for the first time, it's possible that you look at this going, this all seems so impossible, and, and, and it is, and that's why we see the reactions that we see from, from Zechariah and from Mary, the, the, the questions, how is it possible? How, how can one who is past childbearing age have a son? How is it possible that one who is a virgin can conceive and have a child? And for both questions, the answer is the might of God, the power of God will do this. We read on, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose, went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So, two things that I just want you to particularly see about Mary's engagement with Elizabeth as she comes down and, and speaks with Elizabeth. First one is, is Elizabeth's response, where she says in verse 45, she comments about Mary's faith. There's a Tendency, Roman Catholic Church, certainly as it goes through a lot of this passage about Mary, sort of builds its doctrine of Mariology out of a lot of this passage and, and puts a lot of focus on Mary and the adoration and even veneration of, of Mary in some way, showing some kind of unusual adoration. Elizabeth is not doing that. She's not praising Mary for the person that she is. She's not holding her up as some um, uniquely holy woman to be adored in some peculiar way. Rather, Elizabeth is noting Mary's faith. She is commenting on the fact that Mary believes this and rests in this truth. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what the Lord said. I want to suggest to you that at its simplest level, Elizabeth is doing what you are called to do as a mature believer, and that is to encourage those who are younger believers in their faith. It is to come alongside, and here is Elizabeth, the godly, older woman who has been steeped in God's truth and has experienced God's work in her life, and now saying to Mary in a circumstance where Mary has certainly stuff to question in all of this. This is, not, this is God's will, but it's not by any means easy. We, we already know the response she got from Joseph, the initial response from Joseph when she told him this was he wanted to quietly divorce her, and it takes the intervention of an angel to, to help Joseph see what's going on here. And I would just suggest to you that Elizabeth is wisely and rightly commending Mary's faith. How blessed that you, you believe God that you trust him in this. 
It's a, a, a great encouragement to us to commend others in their faith, to help them to see as they are growing in their faith and trust. But, but the thing I really want you to see is verse 43. I think this is the most profound piece in what Elizabeth says. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Mary's faith was commendable, but the child within Mary's womb was worthy of praise. This word, Lord, of all the gospel writers, Luke uses it far more than all of the others. A couple of the others use the word Lord 50 sometimes. Luke, about 86 times, uses the word Lord throughout his gospel, and almost exclusively as a reference to God, to deity, and then tying it to Jesus Christ. And so when you see Lord in Luke, it's almost always pointing either back to God in heaven, or it's now being used to refer to Jesus and and bringing them together. And so already in chapter 1, by the time we get to verse 43, where Elizabeth says this, Luke's already used the word Lord 10 times. The temple of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, uh, the commandments of the Lord, the Lord God, and and, and so on. So he's already been making it clear to his readers that, that God in heaven is the Lord, he is the master. And so when Elizabeth Now, under the the leading of the Holy Spirit, verse 41 said, the Holy Spirit is already at work in this, revealing things to her. Now, under the leading of the Spirit says, the mother of my Lord, it's not just a simple term of sort of respect or honor. She She is expressing submission to the child in Mary's womb. She's already acknowledging the fact that this is the one sent from God who is to be the Messiah, the Master. This is probably the the first most clear human confession in the Gospels about the deity and identity of Jesus Christ. Elizabeth is saying something that is remarkable here about who Jesus is, that he is Lord. And it's from that then that Mary responds with what we read next and where we'll focus on for the rest of our time. Verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Let me me pause there. There's there's two parts, essentially, to Mary's song of praise. This first part that we just read is really sort of personal reflection on what God is doing to her, how how God is pouring out mercy on her, and, and she is in particular giving back this expression of praise for how God has favored and blessed her. And then in the balance of it, we'll see in a moment, that's now spread, that this blessing to her is now something that is being broadened out to God's people in general. And she's going to speak about how God shows favor and mercy on his people. You've no doubt heard this passage referred to as the Magnificat. It's a Latin word. It's the Latin translation of the first word that Mary says in the Greek. In our Greek text, it says to us, verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. In the Greek, it's the first word it says, and Mary said, megaluni, which is magnify. So magnify my soul, the Lord, is the structure in the Greek, which is a little awkward for us, and that's why it gets translated the way it does. But Magnificat is taking that very first word from out of Mary's mouth, which is magnify. Exalt, the verb means to make great, to make big. 
I am, I am magnifying, my soul is magnifying the Lord. This is about God. This is about the worship of God. My soul makes great the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. I'd suggest that we not make too much out of Mary's use of soul and spirit here. She's not necessarily teaching biblical doctrine of, of the nature of man at this point, as much as this is Hebrew poetry, which is the idea of sort of building up synonyms to try to make your point, which is my whole being is glorifying God. My soul, my, my heart, my whole being is, is rejoicing in him. We are we're coming to the core of Mary's being at this point. And so this, this is the launching point. This is the start of this hymn of praise. And the thing you should see, verses 46 and 47, is Mary is saying, I am doing this, magnifying, rejoicing. And then the rest of, of her song is all about everything God has done. I am magnifying and rejoicing, and this is what God has done. It's almost as if after verse 47, when Mary has said, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, as if somebody says, well, why? Well, what are you rejoicing about? What, what's making you so joyous? And she's going to now answer that in this Beautiful description of what God has done. The rest of her song is making God the focus of all of her descriptions because he has done this. He has looked upon me. He is mighty. God is merciful. God exalts the, the weak. God has strength. God fills the hungry and on and on. She's just building this chorus of this is what God has done. That's why this, this Magnificat is all about making God great and why the Magnificat should be for you and I something that as we read and meditate on it helps, helps set a, a pattern for us, a model for us of, of what worship looks like in our own personal meditation. We are, we are worshiping not just because we feel good or having a good day because those come sometimes infrequently and, and, and if we go by our mood, worship can, can be real moody too. We worship and adore God in any and every circumstance because of who God is and because of what he's done. And when we concentrate on that, when we see who he is, and we're reminded of his nature and of his mercy and his might, we have no choice but to respond with gladness and thanksgiving at who he is. To, to magnify is to make larger. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. You and I cannot make God any larger or better then he already is. We don't improve him by our worship. God is great. He is merciful. He is mighty, whether we say it or not. But the idea of magnifying is making our own vision of him greater. It is building our own knowledge of who God is. And so we magnify, we exalt God by, by meditating on his character and who he is and what he's done so that in our own lives, God would be greater so that you, my, my, my goal, I've said this before, every Sunday when I preach, is so that you leave with a, a slightly enlarged version of God. That, that's, that's my whole hope if you take anything away from a Sunday morning sermon is that God is just a little bit bigger than he was when you walked in the door. And that's what I think scripture's saying here. She magnifies, she wants God bigger in, in, in what people see in her life and in what she believes and holds to. First thing that strikes her is God's mercy. If you look again at verse 48, for he has looked upon the humble state of his servant. In fact, so much so that she goes on to say, generation after generation will take note of how he has blessed me. She is marveling at, at what God has done. Mary is saying what 
all of us who, experience, who have experienced God's grace should be saying, who am I? <laughs> Why would God pour out his mercy on me? I, I know my heart. I know my life. Why me? This is a, a reflection in, in her own poetry, is a reflection of the things she has taken in going back to the Psalms. You can think of David in Psalm 8 and saying, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then speaking of the glories of heaven and the moon and the stars and, and all the things you've set in place. And, and what does that lead David to? To ask the question, what, what is man <laughs> that of all of this magnificent creation, why me? Why man? Why, why has humanity been so blessed in such a way as to bear the very image of God? And he marvels at that. And that's what Mary's doing. She's marveling at, you've looked upon the humble estate of your servant. And you, you are doing this through me, and, and it is such a thing that generations will call me blessed because of what you are doing, Lord. She could also be reflecting back on Psalm 138, verse 6, says, For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly. Mary's clearly been a student of God, studying to know him better, and, and that knowledge is now pouring out in this sort of astonishment at God's mercy. She is marveling at what God is doing. It, it, think about it. In the world of Mary's day, a poor young girl, and, and we assume not of, of great means just by virtue of what we know about the trip to Bethlehem and the, the birthing circumstances and all that. So a poor young girl from Nazareth has no real social standing. This is, this is foreign to us today because we, from the time kids are in their teens, we're already building an identity. You know, we're on social media and people know me and I have a presence and people identify me and all that kind of stuff. She, she is unknown Mary from Nazareth of lowly status. Nobody's looking to Mary to do anything magnificent at this point. Nobody's looking to Nazareth for anything magnificent to happen. That's, that's why we see in the ministry of Jesus, can any good thing come out of that sort of remote backwater city? There's no expectation of anything great here. And that's why then when she says, for he has looked on the humble state of his servant. Mary's not, not clamoring for people's attention, no expectation that people would notice her. But God, in his mercy, looks upon her and exalts her to this place of service to be his servant for this particular calling. Every one of us who has been rescued from the judgment that our sin deserves, who has been shown mercy by a holy God who made us, Every one of us whose eyes have been opened to see and love the Lord Jesus Christ and who have been saved forever from God's wrath have the privilege, in fact, the responsibility to return back praise to God and to, to magnify God for his mercy toward us, for what he has done and how he has rescued us. Verse 49, she refers to two attributes. He is mighty and holy is his name. You just take those two attributes alone, God's holiness and his might. And if that's all there is, is God's holiness and might, you and I remain separated from him forever. Because God is sinless and perfect and above all, and he is mighty enough to enforce separation. He is mighty enough to enforce judgment and punishment on us. That's why we, that's why we revel in his mercy, that this mighty one would show compassion. 
And that's why Mary says that this one who has this power, verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. It's astounding. That's the the sort of astonishment that goes with our salvation to pause and think, "This, this mighty, holy God has rescued me from eternal damnation. That's mercy. When one with extraordinary power and perfect holiness and with the authority to judge unholy sinners uses his might to rescue them, and to lift them up, then how else can we respond but with praise and adoration and gladness and rejoicing in spirit? That's why Mary started the way she does and now just begins to unfold. Look, how can I not rejoice? How can I not magnify him? This mighty one has done great things. With that, she turns to the broader work of God amongst the people. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him, from generation to generation. Watch the contrast in these next couple of verses. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. I'm not going to go piece by piece through this. I just want you to see that just the, in the middle there, that, that particular emphasis that, that's really at the center of her praise, that not only is God mighty, powerful to accomplish all that he sets out to do, but he uses his might to show mercy in particular to the weak and the helpless. He uses his might to take and to lift up those who are humble and who fear him, and at the same time, to take care of those who regard themselves as powerful and mighty and not in need of him. You see that in 51 through 53, really. God God is taking man's sinful order and overturning it. Man's order is that man loves power, man loves powerful people. We envy those who have might and, 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 and the rich and the celebrities and the, the beautiful people who have everything that the world sort of desires and, and they get admiration and adoration from people because we, we just sort of look at that power and that might and that beauty. And yet it says here, God exalts the powerless. God takes those who are weak and in distress. He scatters the proud He brings down those who are mighty and he sends the rich away empty while then lifting up his own servants. Now, there's a piece of this in which as you're reading this, you you might be thinking, I I see this and and I know he, he does this. He has done this. We can see records of him doing this, but I'm also torn because as I look around at the world, I'm not sure I necessarily see this playing out on the world stage. There's still still powerful people who abuse power. There's still rich people who who get their way in all sorts of different circumstances. There are believers in Jesus Christ who even right now are unable to do what we are doing and gather this way because they will be persecuted for their faith. And and it, it, it still seems sort of out of balance. Justice seems hard 
to find. There's, there's rancor and division uh, like we've never seen before, it feels like. So how is it that God is doing these things Mary has praised him for? The answer is the, is the Sunday school answer, right? The answer is the child that's in her womb. The, these things that she's speaking of are all pointing to Jesus and to the work of Jesus Christ, the full and complete work of Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection and his coming again. You see, what Mary, Mary's doing here in verse 50 through 55, in part, is historical. She's, she's reflecting back on what God has done in the past. She can certainly recount God delivering his people from Egypt and Babylon and Assyria. Uh, even when his own people are rebellious, God is sending prophets to call them back and to, to plead with them to repent and turn back to God. And so there, there's history here in, in what she's talking about as far as bringing down the proud and exalting those of humble estate. But Mary's Magnificat is also strongly prophetic because what, she is, what she's speaking about here under the inspiration of the Spirit is the child within her womb who is the promised servant of God who had been spoken of in similar kind of language 700 years earlier. In Isaiah chapter 9, in that familiar passage that says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government or authority shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, of his authority, and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How does God ultimately accomplish his plan to scatter the proud, bring down the mighty, and send the rich away empty while simultaneously fulfilling his promise to pour out his mercy on generations, to exalt the humble, to help his servants, and to save a people for his very own, just as he had promised to Abraham 2,000 years earlier. See, she references that as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She's, she's going back 2,000 years to when God took Abraham outside and made him look up at the stars and said, these will be my people. They will be as numerous as the stars. How is God able to do all of that, scattering the proud and exalting the humble? It is through Jesus. And, and, and Mary is now helping us to see that it is God's design for this child, this Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. This God sent in flesh who will, in the power of God, pour out his mercy on his people and rescue them as a people for his own. And so while Mary is speaking historically of God's mighty work on behalf of his people, on behalf of Israel, she is also speaking with prophetic certainty of everything God will accomplish for his glory through his son, Jesus Christ. The mighty one will show mercy. And he will bring down the mighty on earth and exalt his servants. Let me just put this together in terms of an application for you to think about and ponder this week. As you think about Mary's Magnificat and, and what she has given to us here, what the Spirit has given to us here through her. It, it begins with her declaring this purpose to magnify and, and to rejoice. And then explaining how it is that she sees God as 
bigger and greater, how she is more in awe of his promises and his fulfillment of these things. I, I, I think this is a simple but I hope profound lesson for you and I that should apply to any and every circumstance. You and I know more in terms of truth and revelation than Mary did at that moment when she gave the song of praise. Mary's glory and her knowledge has been perfected and Mary was there at the cross and so Mary has witnessed that. But you and I at this moment know more about the Savior, about his incarnation, about his death, his substitutionary death in our place, about his resurrection, conquering sin and death, and about his promise to come again for his people. We know all of these things. We know these things. And so our song of magnifying the Lord should be even richer and fuller, more constant, more vibrant even than what Mary brings to us here. But I would suggest to you the question is, how how observant are you being as you walk through life to see God in his power and in his mercy at work, to acknowledge that God is being merciful to you in that moment, to see God's might in caring for you and in leading you and providing for you. How, how diligent are you being to watch for that? How careful are you being to, to remember how God has acted on your behalf, how he has done great things for you and your humble estate, how God has come and poured mercy out on you, all of us. We, if we started passing the mic, we could be here for hours giving testimonies of God's mercy and his might, of what he has done and what we have seen him do. Do we bring those things to mind? Do we, do we press on to grow in a knowledge of the truth so that we might further magnify him and understand his character that much more? I, I would say this in even simpler terms just drawing on what Mary has done here. Who are you making the star of your life? Who is the star of your life? Who is the, who is the director that's, that's leading the way and, and, and charting the course? Who are you seeking to submit to? Who is the one whose wisdom and instruction you are hungry for? Who's at the center of your being? Because here is Mary at this incredible moment in her life pausing to reflect on how great and awesome God is, how merciful and mighty he is, that he would do this, that he would call me to be his own, and that I could be his servant. That, that's what should be jumping out at us as we read this Magnificat. If we are to be humble servants of God, much as Mary was doing here, then we too should be thinking, what has God done? How, how do I know God and his character in these circumstances? I may not know what God is doing at this very moment in, in these circumstances. I may be very confused about them, but I am sure that God is merciful and mighty and righteous and just, and he is faithful, and I can rest in him. So how am I seeing his mercy evidenced in my life? How often do I pause to meditate on the truth that the holy God sent his son to be the lamb, to be sacrificed in my place? In these moments when life's circumstances seem hard, do I still remember that God is merciful and mighty and that he looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross? That he delivered me from the darkness and the punishment due my sin in order to deliver me into life and into the joy of rejoicing in my Savior. Let's pray.
Father, I, I pray that if there's anyone listening here this morning or online who approaches this and is still struggling with a sense of hopelessness, who perhaps struggling with knowing the truth of Jesus Christ, I pray that today your spirit would accomplish the great work of causing them to recognize Jesus Christ, not merely as some historical figure whose birth we celebrate this time of year, but as the true and living Savior, the one who came and gave himself as a ransom for sinners and died on the cross, that any who believe in him, who trust in him, who turn to him, will find life. Lord, I pray that for we as, as your children, as believers in Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you would, by our reading in this passage this morning, that you might ignite in us worship, gladness, rejoicing, that as we sing here in just a moment, we would sing with joy and hearts overflowing at the knowledge of who you are and how you who are the mighty, omnipotent God over creation have in mercy saved a people for your very own and rescued us from our sin so that you might lift us up and draw us to yourself that we might see you as Father. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the the coming of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the humble incarnation. We thank you for the hope that we now have in Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.